Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. Well, the Bureau of Land Management has proposed a four-year-long research study in which invasive surgical sterilizations would be performed on wild mares who would then be released after a brief monitored recovery. Is this a good idea? To explore this topic, Bruce Wagman is with us. He's an attorney with Front Range Equine Rescue. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Bruce, what's the background on this proposal? The background all the way, so for people who aren't familiar, is that there are tens of thousands of wild horses uh, across America who are on federal land and who in 1971 were given by Congress the right to stay there and to be protected, preserved, and managed by the federal government. Over the course of the last uh, 47 years, the Bureau of Land Management, which is responsible for most, but not all, of the wild horses in America, has been engaging in a practice of rounding up and removing horses on a regular basis uh, in an effort to, they say, control the population and keep the number of horses on the federal land at the right number so that the land can be used for horses as well as for grazing and for oil and gas interests. The uh, issue that has come up on a regular basis is that the horses continue to thrive and multiply to some degree because, in fact, the BLM's process is a faulty one so that they have failed in their efforts and now desperate to engage in some activity that will curtail the number of horses. They have proposed a rather barbaric and uh, bizarre type of surgery to sterilize mares on the range. The current program we are talking about is going to happen or is proposed to happen in Oregon, near Hines, Oregon, and will involve, as you said, Peter, the sterilization by surgery of, at this point, 100 mares. The procedure, in short, without getting too graphic, involves entry through the vagina to uh, grab the ovaries blindly without any visualization by the surgeon, uh, put a loop around them, cut them off, and remove them through the vagina. And Front Range Equine Rescue has objected to this practice in the past and stopped it two years ago, and the BLM is now uh, proposing to do it again, and so we have again objected and issued comments, which are official comments to the BLM that this should not go forward. Bruce, I want to explore some of the details a little bit more, but let's take a step back, if you would. Who has the authority to determine what the, quote, right number of wild horses is? The BLM, and in, in part the Forest Service, is uh, authorized to determine what the right number of horses is. The, the problem is, is that we think that their data and science is faulty, and they are often relying on data that is between 10 and 30 years old they come up with a number known as the appropriate management level, or AML, similar to a term some may know know as carrying capacity, by which they determine how many horses should be on a given uh, piece of land. Uh, That determination is made by the BLM and often challenged by groups like Front Range Equine Rescue when we think that decision is arbitrary and capricious or not supported by science. But it is ultimately the BLM's authority and job to make that decision. In this study, what are they trying to accomplish? So 
the, the study is, uh, and I, I should say this study is part of a larger roundup, so they'll actually be rounding up close to 800 animals. Um, they will then take 100 of the mares, the female horses, and perform this surgery on them, and then return only 30 of those 100 to the range. What they're trying to accomplish is a, a, a research study that determines whether or not this is safe essentially, whether it's safe both for the individual mares who have this surgery done to them, whether it's safe for wild horses in general in terms of herd structure. So the questions that abound are what will happen if there are these sterilized horses living within the herd? Because these herds are very, very cohesive, complex family units. They travel in, in large numbers, but also within those large numbers, there are small families, if you will, a stallion, a, that's a male horse, the mare, and one or two young. And so the question is, how will this affect them? But it's, they're doing experimentation without any data, without any knowledge of what's going to happen on wild horses. So the experimentation itself is rather uh, extreme, radical, and has unknown consequences to the wild horses. Even if one accepts that some kind of research is desirable, this particular surgery is not the best option you have written. Can you explain? There does not need to be any invasive sterilization, any invasive surgery. And, and I should mention that under the applicable law, known as the Wild Free Roaming Horses and Burrows Act, we call it the Wild Horse Act, the BLM is required to engage in the minimal feasible uh, intervention with horses. And that minimal feasible intervention, in our opinion, is the use of contraceptive agents. So horses can be darted with contraceptives, which will then keep them from reproducing, which will then keep the population down without engaging in barbaric and invasive sterilization procedures. And so that's what the BLM should be using. They're very aware of it. What they have done is failed to use it adequately in the past so failed to use it adequately and then said, oh, it's not working. If one is going to manage these herds, certainly the issue of genetic diversity needs to be addressed. Is that being taken into account? We don't. Great question. We don't think that the BLM is taking genetic diversity into account uh, sufficiently. And it's something that Front Range Equine Rescue has on the very top of its list of concerns, because what the BLM regularly does is reduces the number of horses in a herd and then says there's not enough horses to sustain genetic diversity, therefore we're going to wipe out the entire herd. So they're using genetic diversity or the lack thereof as an excuse to remove horses from the range. And so that's something we're very concerned about and, and the data often shows is not being considered by the BLM. And does the BLM provide enough information on what they're doing to the general public so we can know what's happening? Well, they, they provide this proposed draft environmental assessment, which we've commented on. Um, the answer is no. There's an awful lot of information that we don't know that we're often seeking through Freedom of Information Act requests that we can't get. Uh, and And the numbers are so off at times that it's hard to believe everything that's coming out of the BLM in terms of data, in terms of numbers of horses, as well as other factors. So what's the current status of this issue? The current status, actually, I'm glad you asked because it's actually rather good. So the, the BLM announced this proposal. Uh, this proposal involved 
Colorado State University veterinarians engaging in the research uh, and engaging in the operations. And very shortly after we filed our comments, Colorado State University actually pulled out of the project. Uh, so they uh, made an announcement about a week or two ago that uh, they are withdrawing their partnership on the surgical spaying of mares. That's a quote from Colorado State University. And so that right now uh, we're not sure what the BLM is going to do. The the legal process is the BLM issues this proposed uh, draft environmental assessment document. We have uh, commented on, on it, as have many, many others, thousands of others. And the BLM is then required to respond to those comments with a final environmental assessment if indeed they intend to go forward. I'm not sure how they will go forward with the sterilization part since they've lost their veterinarians and surgical sterilization partners, uh, but that at this point remains to be seen. But uh, I think it's good news that the folks at Colorado State University heard what we were saying and pulled out. Bruce, the 1971 Wild Horse Act recognizes that these herds are iconic and a treasure, an American treasure. Uh, don't you think many people would just be so sad to learn really what's going on in the West? Yeah, honestly, Peter, I've been doing this work, wild horse work, for probably a decade or more, and I've never spoken to somebody who was not in shock at uh, what was going on with the wild horses in that hour. Wild horses who are indeed, you know, living statues, if you will, of the American spirit. Of they are, they are the animals that helped us create this country. That they are being rounded up. Uh, what happens with the ones who are rounded up, by the way, is they're often placed into long-term holding corrals where they live the rest of their lives fenced in as compared to their lives as wild horses where they range 10 to 30 miles a day with their families. Uh, and so people are, are shocked and upset about what's going on with the wild horses for sure. Bruce, you're representing Front Range Equine Rescue in this effort. They can go to the website and learn more. Exactly. FrontRangeEquineRescue.org, not dot .net, not dot .com. Okay. Bruce Wagner, thank you very much for bringing this information to us. My pleasure, Peter. Thanks so much for having me. More with animals today after the break. You're listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of the show. Well, I'm proud to say we are now in our 10th year of weekly broadcasts, bringing you timely and critical animal news from all corners of the earth. Join us each week as we explore animal welfare and animal rights issues, as well as fun pet topics with fascinating guests and experts. And if you don't catch the show live on your local radio station, you can listen two other ways by going to the Animals Today website, that's animalstodayradio.com, or as a podcast on iTunes. It's so easy to subscribe on iTunes, and when you do, each week, usually on Sunday, a fresh show will download right onto your device. I'm Dr. Lori Kirstar, and thanks for listening. Last Thursday, the 9th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco ordered the Environmental Protection Agency to remove the pesticide called chlorpyrifos from sale in the United States within 60 days. So here's the story behind this. 
First of all, chlorpyrifos is widely used on crops like corn, apples, and soybeans. Chlorpyrifos was created by Dow Chemical Company in the 1960s, and it remains among the most widely used agricultural pesticide in the United States, selling about 5 million pounds domestically each year. So back in 2000, and after receiving a lot of pressure from some federal regulators, Dow voluntarily withdrew chlorpyrifos for use as a home insecticide and placed what they called a no-spray buffer zone around sensitive sites such as schools in 2012. And then, a few years ago, the Obama administration proposed banning the pesticide's use on food because research showed that it might be harmful for humans, specifically the neurodevelopment of children. Now, without going into the specific research done and whether it was really conclusive or provided sufficient evidence to show this chemical is harmful, because that's really debatable. But the bottom line was some research does suggest chlorpyrifos poses a threat to human health. But the question is whether or not it's enough to warrant a complete ban of the insecticide. Anyway, personally, I think it was a really good move to try to ban this because the move was already made or it was determined for whatever reason that it's too dangerous to spray at your residence and too dangerous to spray where your kids go to school. So you'd also think it might be too dangerous to spray it right on the food you ingest, right? So now last year in 2017, the EPA chief Scott Pruitt announced he was reversing this effort to ban chlorpyrifos on foods. And he says, you know, the science shows the chemical to be harmful was flawed. Well, then you have this coalition of farm workers, environmental groups, and the attorneys general for several states suing the EPA for doing this. Anyway, the court said Pruitt violated federal law by ignoring the conclusions of the EPA scientists that this pesticide is harmful. So just to remind you who this guy Pruitt is, he was forced to resign earlier this summer over like a dozen alleged ethics investigations. Attorney General from California said in a statement, this is one more example of how then EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt skirted the law and endangered the health of our children. In this case, all because he refused to curb pesticide levels found in food. You don't really have to be an environmentalist to think that this was a good decision to ban this pesticide. Now, theoretically, since the court ruling was a split decision, the EPA could appeal to the Supreme Court. I think that's how it works. I don't think they will, but we'll see. By the way, I read that this pesticide, chlorpyrifos, belongs to a family of organophosphate pesticides that are chemically similar to a nerve gas developed by Nazi Germany before World War II. Yeah, that's something I really want sprayed on my food. And a spokesperson for Dow, Greg Schmidt, said last year, we will continue to support the growers who need this important product. According to the National Institutes of Health, the insecticide is toxic to birds and extremely toxic to fish. It's also extremely toxic to non-target insects such as bees. So like any poison or pesticide, enough of it or high enough doses can kill or harm any rodent or cat or dog or child or adult. And if you get a chance, listen to my interview with veterinarian Dr. Robert Reed on June 3rd, 2017, Dangers of Pesticides Sprayed Around the House to Your Pets. It's very informative. So that's animalstodayradio.com and go to June 3rd, 2017. Well, Laura, you'll be interested to hear this as a follow-up because... The 
company Monsanto, which manufactures the weed killer Roundup, well, they just lost a huge case. It was brought by a man with lymphoma claiming that his work as a groundskeeper where he applied the Roundup for many years contributed to or caused this cancer. Monsanto was ordered to pay $289 million, 250 of that as punitive damages and $39 million to the groundskeeper. There are actually hundreds of lawsuits out there claiming that Roundup causes cancer and they have been given the okay to go ahead and proceed to trial, despite the fact that Monsanto has been claiming there's no connection between its active ingredient, which is glyphosate, and cancer. And similar to your story about the pesticide, there are differences of scientific opinion about whether this is carcinogenic. For instance, the World Health Organization says it's probably carcinogenic, but the U.S. EPA has gone back and forth and considers it a possible carcinogen. Now, I want to share with you one interesting perspective, a comment about this verdict. It comes from Nassim Taleb. He's the author, philosopher, and former trader, author of The Black Swan and the book Fooled by Randomness and Skin in the Game, one of my favorite authors and intellectuals. And he uh, posted on social media, first calling for champagne. And he says, Monsanto lost the case. People around me were wondering which soccer game I was watching. Number one, this is a victory for science. It's not about glyphosate. It's that the manipulation of science by corporations, the bullying of scientists does not pay. Number two, this is also a victory for liberty. The legal system, tort laws, is protecting citizens while regulators were in collusion with the industry. The EPA, FDA let Monsanto ghostwrite their rules. Wow. He goes on. Regulators are indirectly owned by industry as they get hired later as payback, same as Wall Street where people good to industry get a job at five to 20 times their previous salary. Number three, this will open the floodgates, hundreds of lawsuits against Monsanto. And finally, number four, we are compiling a list of Monsanto shills involved in the protracted smear campaign against yours truly, particularly that we have documents from the Monsanto papers. So, wow. Yeah, there's more to the story. So, we'll see Very what else we Very interesting. Want. Yeah. And on a semi related note, Peter, we get so paranoid when our pest guy comes every month to spray outside, don't we? Yes, we don't want the dogs licking the wet spray material, which he applies to the outside perimeter of the house. And so, we've got, you know, probably five or six dog beds out in the backyard. So, we get them out of the way away from the edge of the house, right? And all water bowls. And no bowls out there, and uh, all their toys are away, and whatever they... Anyway, he goes around, and we keep the dogs sequestered inside until everything's nice and dry. And Yeah, I know, and they say when it's dry, it's safe, but there must be some residue that remains, right? And, and they also say it's not harmful to your pets anyway, but, you know, yeah. let you wonder. Yeah. Who wants to coexist with cockroaches? I don't know. Oh. No, no, no. There's a pest. Okay. <laughs> Okay, well, don't go away. More with animals today, right after the break. Lori, we received this product that we have been enjoying. It's called the Sandlight Sand Free Mat. And essentially, it is a specially woven fabric. It comes in a large mat. And it's designed to protect you and your pets from the ground underneath. No dirt or sand can come up through the bottom of the mat. And so it makes it a perfect place for you and your pet to lounge comfortably at the beach or on grass if you're trying to avoid ants or while camping. 
It's very durable. It's a very useful product. It's the Sandlight Sand Free Mat. Welcome back to Animals Today. Okay, so if you've been tuning into the show, you know where we stand on the ethics of palm oil. Its production is a major cause of deforestation and habitat loss, specifically for orangutans. And since it's used in about half of the products on supermarket shelves, one might ask, is it healthy to consume? Well, the answer is no. Palm oil is extremely high in saturated fats. One tablespoon of palm oil contains 55% of the daily recommendation of saturated fat. Remember the difference between unsaturated and saturated fats? Unsaturated fats are found mainly in plants. These fats, the unsaturated fats, are usually known as the good fats because they are very beneficial to one's health. They can lower the level of the bad cholesterol in your blood and increase the good cholesterol. Food examples are nuts, seeds, avocados, and oils like olive oil and canola oil. And then you have your saturated fats or bad fats. Why are they bad? Because they are known to be associated with increased risk of heart disease, cancer, and stroke. How does that happen? Well, in a nutshell, these fats, unlike the unsaturated fats, are solid at room temperature. So just think of them as solidifying or being solid in your arteries and heart, causing stroke and heart attacks. Where do you find these saturated fats? Loaded in animal products. Chicken, beef, pork, lamb. Saturated fats are also in cheese, butter, ice cream, and guess what? In palm oil. Number one cause of death for both men and women in the U.S., heart disease, followed by cancer. Not to mention we're all getting fat, too. And of course, with that comes high blood pressure and diabetes. But the common diseases that afflict Americans today are not just the natural consequences of aging or genetics. It's our diets. It's all the animal products and saturated fats we're consuming. And we know and studies show that as animal products increase in a nation's diet and a population, we see the risk of cancer, heart attack, and stroke go up accordingly. Americans are eating huge amounts of saturated fats in their diets. And this comes from animals and animal products like cheese. And I know I'm digressing here. Americans love cheese. According to a recent study, Americans are eating 23 pounds of cheese each year, triple the amount consumed in 1970. And did you know that cheese is addicting? Really? Yes, you can become addicted to cheese. You see, the main protein in cheese is casein. And when you digest this milk protein, casein, you get a product called casomorphine. Casomorphine, like morphine, triggers the opioid effect in the brain. It's the brain chemical responsible for feeling of pleasure, feeling of euphoria, right? Casomorphine has the opioid effect, hence cheese is addictive. And indeed, I think if you ask any vegan, most of them would say the hardest thing they had to give up when becoming vegan was the cheese. At least that certainly was the case for me and Peter. Anyway, Americans love fat, especially the fat you find in animals and their products, the saturated fat. 
Okay, so let's get back on track here. Palm oil, extremely high in saturated fat. So now switching gears, because recently, June of this year, a couple months ago, a ban went into effect, eliminating trans fats from packaged items and restaurant foods. Trans fats or trans fatty acids, remember what they are? We sort of always heard they were bad for us, but what are trans fats? Well, they're formed when liquid oil is treated with hydrogen gas and made solid. And by the way, by doing this, you increase the shelf life of foods. So that's a good reason why food manufacturers would want trans fats in their products. And they are bad for you. Yes, extremely unhealthy for you. So we talked about saturated fats, right? The bad kind of fat, the kind of fat that is in animal products and clogs your arteries. But trans fats are even worse. Trans fats raise LDL, bad cholesterol, and make you more likely to get heart disease and stroke. And they also lower HDL, the good cholesterol. So you find them in a bunch of snack foods like cookies, crackers, margarine, microwave popcorn, frozen pizza, donuts, and in abundance in French fries and other fried fast foods. And it's been shown there's an increase in death from many causes associated with a high intake of trans fats. Higher intake of trans fats have been consistently associated with an increased stroke rate in various population studies. Now, back in January 2006, the FDA required the food industry to openly note the amount of trans fats in foods on the nutrition facts label. And shortly later, I think it was the same year, 2006, New York City was the first city in the U.S. to ban trans fats in foods sold by restaurants and bakeries. And then the trend started going in that direction, slowly pushing to get these fats out of our foods. And in fact, it was estimated that the consumption of trans fats fell by 78% in a 9 to 10-year span, I think it was from 2003 to 2012, and probably due to the labeling rule and subsequently reformulation of foods. And if you pay attention to marketing labels, you probably noticed more and more snack type foods being labeled as having zero grams of trans fat. But without getting too far into the topic of misleading food labels, zero grams of trans fats on the food label doesn't necessarily mean there's not any trans fat in that product. I believe that if a product contains less than 0.5 grams per serving of trans fat, then the manufacturer can label as zero grams of trans fat. So a food can contain up to 0.49 grams of trans fat and still be labeled as zero grams. Anyway, in November 2013, the FDA made a preliminary determination that trans fats are not recognized as safe. And then, of course, there was this big push by the FDA to ban trans fats in the food supply. And in 2015, companies had three years until June 2018 to remove them from products in grocery stores. And indeed, here we are. Trans fats are banned from packaged items and restaurant foods as of June 18 this year. So what happened during this time when you got the forced labeling and these health concerns of the trans fat? Companies had begun to reduce their reliance on trans fats and what takes its place in all their products? Palm oil. 
And indeed, we saw that at the time when companies began to restrict their use of trans fats in the early 2000s, the imports of palm oil in the U.S. have grown dramatically. In 2012, the United States imported around seven times as much palm oil as it had in 1999 when the FDA first proposed mandatory labeling. And the decreasing use of partially hydrated oil was one of the reasons. And according to USDA data, U.S. imports of palm oil more than doubled between 2005 and 2012. Whether you heard this story of palm oil before or not, or you knew about the push to ban trans fats or not, and unless you're a really good nutrition label reader, most American consumers have likely increased their consumption of palm oil over the last several years. And as I stated earlier, unlike most vegetable oils, palm oil is loaded with saturated fat, right? Meaning it's solid at room temperature. And again, one tablespoon of palm oil contains 55% of the daily recommendation of saturated fat. It's associated with increased risk of heart disease, cancer, and stroke. So if you are a conscientious, compassionate American who cares about your health, cares about the environment, and our beautiful non-human animals, many of whom are endangered and live in the tropical forests, you should be demanding that the palm oil in our favorite foods be only deforestation-free palm oil. And if you ask me, instead of what manufacturers have been doing, substituting the trans fats with palm oil, substitute with a vegetable oil like canola oil or soybean oil, which contains more unsaturated fats, much healthier for you, better for the environment, and better for the orangutans. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Thanks for tuning in to Animals Today. Don't go away. More with the show right after the break. As temperatures climb, please remember never to leave your dog in the car, even for just a minute. Because even with the windows cracked and your car parked in the shade, the temperature inside can climb up in a matter of minutes, high enough to kill your pet. If you love your dog, leave them at home. And if you see a dog or other pet in a car, you may only have a minute to save their life. Here are a couple steps you can take. Make an announcement in the store or business that the car is parked nearest to. Also, call the police department or animal control right away. Remember, it only takes a minute or two for a dog to get seriously ill or die in a car on a warm day. So swift action can save a life. Dogs are unable to cool themselves the way people can. So never leave a dog or any animal inside a car on a warm day, not even for a minute. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. You're listening to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. I want to remind you to visit us at animalstodayradio.com. Like us on Facebook and go to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. Each week, we bring you the latest animal news from around the globe. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at aianimals.org. And if you like what you hear, consider donating to our cause of promoting compassion and respect for all animals. That website, again, is aianimals.org. 
Welcome back to Animals Today. I want to report that a tiny family-run traveling circus called Circus Pages has finally decided to cease operations. Their two elephants, we have learned, are now residents of the Memphis Zoo. So this, of course, raises many questions for us. And to learn more, I'm very pleased to welcome Angela Grimes, Director of Development and Operations at Born Free USA. Hey there, Angela. Hi, Lori. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. So, Angela, whenever we hear about captive elephants being moved, we try to learn the details. What do we know about the former lives of these two elephants named Daisy and Bombi? Well, what we know about Daisy and Bombi is also what we know about elephants, lions, tigers, and all animals who are used in traveling shows. Once you go behind the big top and look away from what the circus would want you to believe is this family-friendly, wholesome entertainment, what you have are animals who are abused, they are kept in chains, they spend many, most of their life traveling and held captive for those moments in the big top. And then when they are performing, they are doing tricks that are painful, they're frightening, and they're unnatural. So Daisy and Bombi are just two animals that represent hundreds and and thousands who live this kind of life every single day for human amusement. Yeah. Now, I read that the family just decided to no longer continue operating their family circus. Do you know how the elephants were transferred and whether they were purchased? I do not know the details of their transfer or purchase. Uh, I will say that at Born Free USA, we would have loved to see them go to a reputable elephant sanctuary. There are a couple in the United States, the Elephant Sanctuary in Tennessee and the Performing Animal Welfare Society, PAWS in California. Both have beautiful facilities where elephants are able to live out their lives with the company of other elephants, with space, large acres to roam and walk and live in peace after they've come out of shows like this. Yes, I presumed you and Born Free USA are not pleased and were not pleased that these elephants were transferred to a conventional zoo. Angela, is there any way in your mind that these elephants can have a reasonable, any reasonable quality of life there? They will not have a reasonable quality of life because they're in captivity. Right. And that quality of life cannot happen in those kinds of circumstances. They're not on proper substrates. They don't have the space to walk as elephants need to do in the wild to maintain proper foot and and ankle and leg health. They can walk miles every single day in the wild. That simply can't happen in a zoo setting, no matter how large the habitat is. They are also then confined, um, often in zoos, they're confined inside at night, and and they have people walking by. They're they're not left to have a quiet, peaceful life that, that nature really intended for them. Could these elephants have gone to a sanctuary? Was that possible? Is there one anywhere in the world that could have taken them? Uh, that was probably a decision made by the circus. There's a, a large machine in terms of the entertainment industry where animals are moved from one place to another. Uh, it, it often comes down to profit. It comes down to right, right. how can people 
make money on the backs of the animals. And anytime you have animals being used in commerce and for profit, the animals suffer. It's all about the people. Are zoos in North America closing down their elephant exhibits? Is that the trend? I think we are seeing that some zoos are closing their elephant exhibits. Uh, we are definitely seeing circuses that are choosing to to close down, to phase out elephants. And this is all coming about because of a really positive trend in public opinion. The public are is learning about the the abuses and what happens to these animals to get them to perform night after night in in shows and in in you know traveling venues t- traveling entertainment circuses uh, and once the public gets behind that and they stop buying tickets these circuses can see that it's no longer profitable for them and and they are being forced to close their doors uh, that is something that Born Free USA works on is educating the public, trying to sway public opinion and bring about this kind of change on a grassroots level. I mean, for example, we have cities and states who are banning traveling circuses. Last year, the state of Illinois banned the use of elephants in traveling shows. The state of New York has banned elephants in traveling shows, and the city of New York has actually banned all wild animals to be used in traveling shows. This is a a beautiful trend that we are hoping continues to just sweep across every city and state in the country. Well, I just find it extremely disappointing and awfully sad that these two elephants had to spend the first part of their lives abused and exploited in a circus, and now that they have to spend the rest of their lives captive in the unnatural, inhumane environment of a zoo. It is very sad. And when you look at it from the elephant's perspective, they are sad. You, When you visit a zoo and you see an elephant or a tiger uh, pacing, or you see uh, primates who are maybe chewing on their own arms. Those are not natural behaviors. Right. Those are stereotypic behaviors that say that they're stressed, they're unhappy, they they are not emotionally well, and it, it is very sad when when that happens to animals after they've had one life of misery and they're just transferred to another life of misery. Angela, any final comments from my listeners? Uh, Yes, I would like to just let everyone know that they can be a part of this movement. They can be a part of helping close the doors forever for circuses coming to their towns and their municipalities. And that is as simple as writing and contacting your local council people, your state legislators, and Go to Born Free USA's website. We have tools to help you with the information that you need and to to help make this a reality and make the, the world a better place one city at a time. Angela Grimes, thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet the animals. Hi, this is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at animalstodayradio.com. Animalstodayradio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. 
animalstodayradio.com. Thanks for listening.